Malcolm Gladwell's latest book is called Talking to Strangers, and his podcast with Bill Simmons should be called Understanding the World. The duo talked about sports, pop culture, media, and a lot of current events, but the undertone of the podcast and the ideas are all really just about making sense of the world. Understanding the world around us may not be our ultimate goal, but good decision-making should be. That's what we really want. That's where the rubber meets the road. We can follow the news about some place around the world, but if it really doesn't affect our day-to-day or our year-to-year decision-making, how helpful is that really going to be? And what Gladwell and Simmons talk about is a lot of interesting decision-making, mostly about how we make decisions when information is easily available and understood compared to when it's not. First, we should warn you, everything is about to get a whole lot more difficult. Here's Gladwell on how. And then I had to sit down with this other guy who studies what happens to people when they've been traumatized. And that second guy, super, super interesting. And his, his, one of the things he told me, and it's not, not something I went into in the book, he was saying the thing that's fascinating about PTSD is you could have two soldiers who go through exactly the same experience, exactly the same. One guy will emerge 100% healthy, and one guy will have suffered from profound PTSD. And there's no obvious reason why. In other words, it's not that one guy is from a good background and healthy and the other guy is drug using and you they are objectively indistinguishable. Keep that idea in mind. We don't understand how. Objectively indistinguishable. The world has always been a really complex place with a lot of interacting parts. We have a name for this, actually. It's called chaos or complexity. And it's a study of these systems that have all of these interacting elements where we can't really predict what the future holds. I've seen this living through our second hurricane season in central Florida. And there's so much variability with these storms. One weather forecaster had a really good YouTube video about why storms are so unpredictable. And really, it's a combination of five or six other things depending on where warm spots in the globe are and cool spots and water temperatures and water flows and high pressure and low pressure systems. And each of these major systems that influences where a hurricane will go through the Gulf of Mexico and through the state of Florida and through the Atlantic Ocean, all of those major systems is also influenced by five or six other things which are also influenced by all these other things so it's really hard to get a handle on the world but that's fine because for the longest time people have lived in very simple beings the complexity of the world rarely got into fisticuffs with the simplicity of human existence and human understanding until now trouble only enters we only have that that clash and that combat between human simplicity and the complexity of the real world because the number of variables have increased. David Epstein's book, Range, which you've probably heard him talk about in one of my podcasts or in a podcast that Epstein did with someone else, begins with the distinction that points this out. And it's the distinction that in some environments, people want to specialize and in some environments, they want to be rangy. Epstein draws on the work of a number of researchers, and one researcher has termed these kind and wicked environments. 
In kind environments, specialization rules the day. This is the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice camp, and it works great for things like sports, music practice, and even, I would wager, value investing. However, as the number of variables increase, like people, conditions, atoms, influences, causes, effects, time, things become a wicked environment. This is our larger systems, like our hurricane systems. We don't know what's going to happen, and the world has always been wicked, but we have always lived a kind existence. And we never noticed, we never emphasized the wickedness of the world around us, the complexity, the chaos, because we existed in such a small segment of time and dealt with a small segment of information. I mean, I've known people in my lives who, who, who grew up where the television was a big advancement, and before that was the radio, and before that it was nothing, it was crickets, it was your own entertainment. So just in the scope of my grandparents' lifetime, we see this kind of change, we see this development, we see this introduction of all these variables, and all of this is changing, and it's going to change even more. I did a lot of research into David Weinberger in his online talks. Weinberger has been an observer and participant of the internet since the very early days. If you've heard of Clay Shirky, Weinberger is kind of like a cousin to some of Clay Shirky's ideas. And he mentions the Deep Patient Initiative from Mount Sinai. And what this was, was the hospital decided to see if artificial intelligence and machine learning in the role of technology could somehow give us information on this wicked environment. So in the same way we have weather forecasting, in the same way that sports gamblers will run simulated seasons, this hospital wanted to see if they could use some of the same approaches, some of the same thinking, some of the same theory, and see if it could diagnose medical conditions better. So they took 700,000 electronic medical records from patients, and they ran them through what they called an unsupervised deep learning method, and evaluated the artificial intelligence's ability to diagnose uh, 78 diseases across 78,000 patients. This is what the abstract says, and this was published in the Journal of Nature. Our results significantly outperformed those achieved using representations based on raw EHR data. EHR stands for Electronic Health Records. And alternative feature learning strategies. Prediction performance for severe diabetes, schizophrenia, and various cancers were among the top performing. So what they did here is they took this huge trove of data, they ran it through an unsupervised algorithm, and the results were actually better than what their doctors and their nurses and their specialists had been diagnosing. This is incredible, but here's the kicker. Here's where we see that conflict between kind and wicked. The doctors don't know how this is done. This goes for eyes too. Google Artificial Intelligence is able to take an examination of the eye and diagnose certain heart conditions. And when they ask cardiologists about this, when they ask them, look at these same pictures and tell us what you think and try to guess when someone was diagnosed with a heart condition and when someone wasn't, the artificial intelligence does better than the cardiologist. And the cardiologists aren't even quite sure what they're looking at. David Weinberger has been following commenting on the internet for a long time, and he says that soon doctors won't be able to explain the why they're diagnosing something, just the what. 
This is incredible to think about this, that you someday we will go to our doctors. And it won't seem as strange in the future as it does now because we haven't worked our way to that. We haven't seen the progression of this, uh, this kind of machine learning. We haven't seen that. But what we are seeing now is how some machines are able to model the complexity, model the wickedness of the world around us. But for now, there's a bigger issue in the Gladwell and Simmons podcast, something that we definitely need to address and something that will help us understand the world that we live in for now. The first point we want to make is that understanding does not imply agreement. Here's Gladwell. I watched Stephen A. on ESPN talk about this, and he was like saying, don't use that as a... He was like, he didn't want to... He didn't want to incorporate that fact into his understanding of Aaron Hernandez. And I thought, you know what? That's a big mistake. I think you have to. It doesn't let him off the hook. But it does say that this is like a, and I, 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 this is actually a kind of a way of thinking about problems that I like a lot, in, that I use in this book, particularly when I talk about the Stanford rape case. When just because you bring in a, uh, uh, an outside consideration that affects behavior does not mean you are letting the perpetrator off the hook. So to say, I have this chapter on Stanford rape case, which is all about alcohol. What does alcohol do? How Brock does it Turner feed into the about. yeah Brock Turner case? How does it? How does alcohol drunkenness contribute to sexual assault? And a lot of people, their first impulse is, oh, you're by by saying alcohol contributes heavily, you're trying to let Brock Turner off the hook. Wrong. 100% wrong. In fact, it greatly clarifies his responsibility for his own behavior. So he's not just responsible for his behavior towards women. He is also responsible for the things he puts inside his body. So we've now told him, dude, you're 18. There are two things you need to worry about. One, do not act like a criminal towards women. Two, don't ingest substances at such a rate that turn you into a criminal, right? right. It is So in our immediate decision-making area, in our relatively kind environments, what we need to get in our heads, the thing that will help us make better decisions, is to focus on understanding and divorce that from agreement. That we're not trying to justify something, or we're not trying to add nuance to something that will change the outcome, but just to get the full picture. And there are some tools that will help us do that. The first of which is inversion. It just means to take the opposite side. And we see this in different domains. So anytime we see a tool being used in different domains, we can think of it as having some kind of robustness. It's kind of proving itself. Ray Dalio likes to say that he looks for situations that repeat across different situations. So that can be different industries. It can be through time. It can be in different situations. It can be in different governmental or political structures. And so one of the tools that we see used over and over again is inversion. Short sellers, like investing, like to find the inverted case. Jim Chano said, reporters generally like talking to short sellers because they're going to get the opposing view of the situation. We also see inversion used in sports. Bill Belichick is notable for his success in football. And part of the reason he's so successful is because he is good at getting the other team to play left-handed. That's his expression for it. He wants to take away their best option. So rather than think about, how am I going to win? Bill Belichick kind of thinks, 
How can I prevent the other team from winning? How can I cause the other team to lose? And when you go through that different path of thinking, you'll get to different answers and you'll get to different results. And that's really helpful to take those other paths. Inversion can also be used in a personal situation where we can observe things that we don't like and we can just avoid those and that'll help us be a better person. Sandy Kleiman said this about working in Hollywood. The entertainment industry is full of complex characters who have tremendously strong qualities as well as humongous flaws. For me, the goal has always been to study good qualities in order to learn what to do, and equally important, to study negative qualities to learn what not to do. Inversion is a great tool because it helps us flip things around. A related, though slightly different, tool that we can use, in addition to inverting the situation, is what's called the ideological Turing test. And I think this is separate because ideology is more emotional. It's more of a story. With inversion, we can kind of think about facts. We can kind of think about raw figures and metrics, which we'll get to later in this episode. But with the ideological Turing test, we're trying to prove to someone that we can explain an ideology. This was coined by the economist Brian Kaplan. And the general idea is this. You adopt a different ideology than the one you have, say political, say economical, say the strategy you think your company should use in a certain situation. And if you can imitate the other side good enough, you could trick an impartial observer, then you've passed the ideological Turing test, and this is named after the Allen Turing test, or the Turing test, for when a machine, or a robot, or an algorithm, or whatever we're going to call it now, is able to fool a human into thinking that that computer program, that electronic, that digitization is actually a person. The third way we can go to a deeper understanding not necessarily in agreement, is to kind of be like Tom Wolfe, where Tom Wolfe says that in his early reporting career, he would kind of show up and he would wear whatever, he, and he would try to fit in and he would try to go along with things, and then he realized that when you go along with a situation, when you pretend like you're an insider, you really don't understand it because you can't ask the basic questions. You can't ask the simple questions. You're sort of already in a story. You're already down a certain path. Oh, these are people who understand it, and they don't ask ask these kinds of questions. And Tom Wolfe says that when he realized that, that changed his whole perspective on writing. He started writing as what he called the man from Mars. He started wearing the white suit that he's famous for. Because he said, when you don't have to fit in with the questions you're asking, you also don't have to fit in with the clothes that you're wearing. And that was really helpful for Wolfe to understand situations and to report like an outsider. Because think of what Wolfe was doing. He was trying to write good stories and who was going to read the stories and it didn't matter what wolf wrote about he could have picked the the most ubiquitous hobby the thing that had the highest participation rates of all of america and he still would have had more people reading it than participating in it that was the nature of what he was reporting on it's jim chanos who will finish this section with who gets really to the heart of the matter and the reason that we're here this is what he said when he talked to Barry Rittles on the Masters in Business podcast. There are thousands of people gainfully employed, making a lot of money, who are there to promote stories, who are always going to tell you why it's fantastic. There are only a handful of people who are going to say, this glass might be half empty rather than half full. We'll move on to the second point from the Simmons 
in Gladwell podcast. Who should be a Law and Order character? I think all of us have watched so many TVs and movies that we've been conditioned to think certain people act certain ways, especially like those Law and Order and CSI type yeah. shows. And it's like you go to see the person and whoever's playing the possible suspect has like four moves basically. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to guess what those four moves. Yeah. And as you point out with like the Amanda Knox thing, she, she fit the profile. If it was the law and order episode of mm -hmm. like, Oh, I bet she did it. Mm -hmm. I bet she's the one. What we need to be careful of is choosing the correct tool for the job. Gladwell is friends with David Epstein, author of the book Range, who we talked about at the beginning of this episode. And one thing that Epstein is trying to do in writing his book is he's trying to encourage people to become more generalist when that helps. He doesn't think that everyone should be a generalist, but my impression from the book is that Epstein sees a spectrum from entirely being generalists to entirely being specialists. And it's his perspective that we are slightly too far down the dial toward specialization and not far enough toward being more like a generalist. And the advantage of being a generalist is having a set of tools in the toolbox to use. So rather than every problem being a nail when you see the world as a hammer, we have a whole set of different tools to use. This is something investors have kind of known for a while. It's why Charlie Munger talks about a latticework of mental models. We have all these different ways to approach a problem, and we can kind of triangulate what the best solution might be, or even if we pick a suboptimal solution, it might be something that tends to work better because it's different and it's varied and it's something that hasn't been seen in those situations before. Recently in 2019, Scott Kupor has also been on a book tour on visiting all the podcasts that you probably listen to. And Mark Andreessen has been on some occasionally as well. And both of them have made the point that in venture capital, sometimes what we have to do is to only learn the right kind of lessons. So in the opening, when we talked about how the number of variables that can increase in a situation, well, the variables are always changing as time goes on. Time itself is a single variable. And as that changes, it can have these butterfly kind of effects where it leads to a cascade of changes down the line. And this is something that venture capitalists specifically have to be open to. They have to be ready for because technology also changes very quickly. So between technology and between time, that industry has two variables they have to cope with. And once you change two variables and then you add in people and other conditions, suddenly you have a whole host of situations that you may have learned the wrong lessons about. When we think about the phones that are in our pockets, we think about the iPhone or the Google phone or the Samsung phone. We have pocket computers and with sensor data and with camera data and all of this other information, we can have this whole host of services rise up. I was just talking to a client this morning and we were talking about the buying versus shopping spectrum, the spectrum from something being convenient to something being more experiential. And the point of the conversation was is that with time, 
your location on that spectrum is going to change. So restaurants are one example where restaurants now have to adapt between people getting takeout and people eating in to having these um, meal delivery services. And it's not so much that that meal delivery service is just like another takeout order because it's not. Meal delivery services are different from takeout orders because they have the customer relationship. And once a business loses that connection to a customer, once there's someone in between them and their customers, a whole host of potential problems rises up. And this is something we have to kind of think about when we identify which tools we want to use. So venture capitalists have to think about how the phone is going to change, how payments are going to change, how healthcare is going to change. Another theme of the recent A16Z interviews has been healthcare, and that also gets back to something we opened this podcast with. We have to think about how artificial intelligence is going to be able to find these correlations that people can't explain, how it's going to find links between certain chemical levels and certain conditions, how it may find links between people who are predisposed to having post-traumatic stress disorder or having concussions in the NFL like Gladwell and Simmons talk about. And what we're going to have to do is think about how to explain those things and how to best apply those things in a changing world. One tool that we tend to use a lot that can kind of get us into trouble. In the same way that candy is a sweet treat, sweet talk is something we need to avoid except in small quantities. It's the stories that really get us into trouble. It's when we choose the wrong story. It's when we choose the wrong one of those, like in the Amanda Knox situation, that we can have some disastrous effects. Dan Carlin warned this about stories. There's an ease to adopting an ideology because it gives you ready-made answers for any situations. It's those stories, those kinds of situations, where our decision-making can really be frazzled. Let's move on to the third clip from the podcast. This one's about Kawhi Leonard. There was a team that could have had Kawhi yeah. that was high in the draft, and they interview him, and he's sweating through his suit, and the GM says at the time, we don't want him because we want someone who's cool under pressure. Right? Of course. And Kawhi has, like, no heartbeat. He's got no Nobody's heartbeat. cooler than so, Kawhi. What that guy was doing was he was making an ass- what's called a transparency assumption. He was assuming that if Kawhi is showing signs of nervousness, what I consider to be signs of nervousness in my presence, then he's nervous. And not only that, that that represents a kind of stable trait of his. Now, Kawhi could have been hot. The suit could have been ill-fitting. Or he could have been nervous, but maybe Kawhi is the kind of guy who's only nervous when he's talking to a middle-aged white guy on the day before the draft, right? Right. So it's like, that's a classic mistake we make, is like we jump to all kinds of conclusions based on some... So the real lesson of that is there's a million, you know, hours of tape of Kawhi playing basketball. You don't have to meet the man. The problem with the Kawhi Leonard situation was that whoever was talking to him and saw him sweat had chose the wrong metrics. The metrics that were most important for evaluating a basketball player at the time was his ability to play basketball. And you have to ask yourself, if I'm measuring this, is this something that really can be measured? So as Gledwell says, there could have been many different explanations for why he was sweating in his suit. And in choosing the sweat as a metric, it didn't account for all those other things. It was measuring something that was totally irrelevant. It was measuring for something that 
didn't actually matter. One way to get a, to avoid the situation of measuring the wrong thing is to ask, what job am I being hired to do? Kawhi Leonard is hired to score points in basketball games. He's hired to play defense in basketball games. He's hired for some level of camaraderie and interaction and cumulativeness with his teammates. So those are all of the things that he is hired to do. But customers hire for jobs to be done all of the time. And a business succeeds when it figures out what job a customer really wants it to do and then figuring out those metrics. We have a previous episode of this podcast where we talk about Rob Fitzpatrick's idea of the mom test. And the gist of that is to ask questions of your customers that are so unbiased, not even your mom could lie to you about them. So it's not asking, is this a good product? It's not even building a product. It's finding out what are their needs? What are their problems? What didn't go well? What did they try to do and they got stuck on? Those are all of the needs to solve for. And then the metrics will come out of that. An interesting use of interesting metrics came up on the September 11th Wharton Moneyball podcast when the group there talked about the Patriots' defensive pressure metric. And the guest that was on the podcast for that segment of the show said that the Patriots actually don't value sacks that much. So here you have a metric that's very easy to measure, number of sacks. If a defensive player tackles a quarterback behind the line of scrimmage, that's very easy to measure, but it's not what the Patriots measure. Instead, what the Patriots measure is how much defensive pressure they get, how much the pocket gets pushed back up front. That's what Bill Belichick wants. That's the kind of metric that works best in a Bill Belichick-led defense. Isn't that interesting? That is so similar to the original Moneyball revolution years ago where the Oakland Athletics found that home runs were kind of expensive to pay for when you think about contracts, and walks were a little bit on sale. They found a better metric, better information to evaluate what job they were hiring for. This idea of using different metrics brings us back to the David Weinberger idea that we started this episode with. Weinberger said, machines don't care. All machines see is correlations. So the value of machines, too, is that they don't get sucked into stories. They focus on new metrics, metrics that aren't easy to measure, aren't easy to see or count or quantify or codify. That's kind of the value of machines. That's why they work so well. A lot of our problem, a lot of the decision-making trouble that people get into comes from something being too easy. When the wrong answer is too accessible and too palatable, that means that something is kind of too easy. Rory Sutherland is one of the most interesting thinkers that anyone can look at, study, read, or even watch on YouTube. And he's got this great idea about homes and what the value of a home is. He says that when you think about a home, you should also think about the opportunity cost. Each additional bedroom that you pay for in a home is kind of like one less vacation you'll take over some period of time. Homes are also an opportunity to show off artwork. Architecture is art, but because people don't value it in the same way that the Patriots look at defense or the original Moneyball team looked at bases on balls or walks, it's kind of underpriced, yet it's something that is really available and accessible to a lot of different people. 
The trouble is, is that this kind of thinking is hard. It's hard to think like Rory Sutherland. There's only one Rory Sutherland that should demonstrate how difficult it is to think that way. We tend to be cognitive misers, and one of my favorite recent stories of this is something that Marcus Huseman talked about on the Shoppernomics podcast. And he said that the way you print out sale items on a physical sign or on a physical tag matters, where if you structure the sale as looking like a traditional subtraction problem, where the larger number is either to the left or on the top, and then the discount of the sale price is to the right or on the bottom, then people perceive that as greater savings than they otherwise would. Another way to do it, Huseman said, is to stack your promotions. If you have something that is 25% off and then 20% off of that, people will do the math that that's kind of like almost 45%, but it's really closer to 40. So we're cognitive misers doing that kind of math while you're shopping for clothes is crazy. People don't want to do that. When the wrong things are too easy, we need to design frictions into our lives. Things like starting with the base rates, arguing well, but also being aware of stories. Recently, Penn Jillette talked with Joe Rogan about just this very thing. Years ago, Penn had a radio show, and Rogan was going to be on, and both of them get along fine, but Penn had a problem with Joe. Joe was kind of either like believing or promoting that the moon landing was a hoax, and Joe's really good at talking about things that entertain his audience. So how much of this was Rogan actually not believing in it, and how much of it was him making a show? We're not sure. But but Gillette said, okay, I'm going to bring in the bad astronomer from Twitter. Him and Joe are going to have a talk. They're both civil guys. So he goes to the bad astronomer, and he's like, listen, I'm having you on. You're going to talk to Joe. But I need to warn you about something. Joe's really good. He's a comedian. He's paid to tell good stories. He's paid to convince people. He's paid, in a sense, to get people to believe something that isn't true. Nobody goes to a comedy show and literally interprets the jokes. The jokes are always set up with context and conditions. And so Joe's job is to frame a world that doesn't actually exist and get people to believe in it and react to it. So, in a sense, Joe is the perfect person to convince someone that a hoax exists, that the moon landing didn't actually happen. So, Penn tells the bad astronomer this, and the two come on the show. And at the end of the episode, Penn is so impressed by Joe Rogan's performance, he tells his audience, Listen, everyone, I know you just heard this, but the moon landing happened. We were there. That's the value of stories. That's the power of stories. That's also the danger of stories if we get into believing something that isn't actually true. And that's really what Gladwell and Simmons were talking about, understanding the world through the right metrics. Sometimes we use metrics that are stories, and sometimes those stories are accurate, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes we don't want to do the work like Stephen A. doesn't want to understand the Aaron Hernandez situation, but we need to remember that understanding does not imply agreement. We also sometimes get drawn into these stories where we think, oh, that's just another one of those, when really what we need is a wider, deeper, richer toolbox of things. We need to be careful when something comes too easy, and when it does increase the frictions, and we need to get ready for one crazy, wicked world, because the world has always been complex and we've never fully understood it but we're inventing machines that do and it's one heck of a time to be alive 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.